Hi, and welcome to this episode of Plastic Surgery Weekly. I'm your host, Clint Evans, and my special guest today is Dr. Adam Oppenheimer. How are you doing, Dr. Oppenheimer? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Clint. It's going to be great to have you on the show. I'm sure there's going to be some fantastic insights that we get into. Before we dive into those, tell me a little bit about your practice and your background. Well, uh, I am in private practice in Orlando, Florida at Fiala Aesthetics, and I've joined a very well-established practice here just recently um, uh, with Dr. Tom Fiala. And so it's really, uh, it's really a great practice. We have our own surgical suite on site in our office complex uh, with a recovery suite where we keep patients overnight. And really the focus is on safety. And, uh, of course, we... Um, you know, we, we like to take really great care of our patients, and um, it's, a, it's a great practice that I'm into. Um, most of what I do is actually aesthetic surgery, so it's probably 95-plus percent of what, uh, what we're doing at the practice, which is, um, which is really exciting. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a place most surgeons want to get to where you're doing 80-90% is the cosmetic and aesthetic aspirational, inspirational-type procedures versus the um, reconstructive and some of those other things. Yeah, well, it's interesting how it's kind of progressed. Um, it's actually not very easy to come into a market and do, say, breast reconstruction. It's more of that is being done by plastic surgeons who are employed by the hospitals. Um, I was in Melbourne pract- in practice, Melbourne, Florida, for for about a year and a half, and there, where it's a little bit smaller and there wasn't a big centralized, you know, university type facility, I was able to do more of those types of cases, but it's really interesting. There's almost two different types of plastic surgeons now in, in practice, the hospital-employed and university type, and then the private practice guys and gals. Gotcha. Yeah, that is an interesting split there, and you've talked a little bit about your own journey, but tell me, how did you get into plastic surgery, or what attracted you to it? I kind of had a little bit of a head start because uh, my, my grandfather and my uncle um, are both uh, board-certified plastic surgeons. And the story is kind of funny, but I was, uh, I was a five-year-old kid, and I was riding a, a new bike around the neighborhood, and I was sticking my tongue out, and apparently I still do that <laughs> underneath my surgical mask now. But um, I, I basically fell uh, and almost bit my tongue completely off. And wow. so my grandfather and my uncle, who was a resident at the time, uh, sewed me up on the kitchen table. And uh, after that, I, I really idolized them. I mean, it Did was, they give you a shot of whiskey before they started? Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah, I mean... It, Sounds it's very pretty, Old West. Yeah, it, uh, you know, they, my grandfather had a medicine bag with all kinds of stuff in it, um, had lidocaine and I'm sure all the sutures and everything. He was just uh, ready to go, and um, but yeah, it was uh, it was kind of amazing, and you can just imagine how I idolized them. You know, it was pretty scary. I remember there being a lot of blood, um, and uh, and but you know when when things went down, you know he and my uncle were the ones that we called, and after that I was just kind of hooked, and so I spent a lot of time with them growing up. You know, I started out just kind of sterilizing instruments in the office and. Uh, then I scrubbed into some small cases with my grandfather, and then I, you know, started scrubbing into tummy tucks and things like that, and facelifts with my, with my uncle and my grandfather. So, I had a little bit of a head start. Gotcha. Yeah, that's uh, obviously part of the the family business, and what could have been a traumatic story turned into something pretty fantastic. And 
yeah, took it's down amazing. a whole new path. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's amazing to think back about it. And then when I learned about all the different nerves that go through the tongue, it's pretty crazy that they all they all work. <laughs> right, got those sewn back together, reattached, and ready to go again. So you you can still taste uh, chocolate and pies and steaks and everything. Yeah, it's good. I'm good to go. <laughs> Outstanding. Yeah, you got those uh, the four pan. I don't know if they teach that in surgery school, but you got the the sweet at the front and the sour and the salty at the two sides, and then the bitter at the the back top of the tongue so yeah sort of well i don't want to get into the anatomy of the tongue too much but yeah it's it's amazing there's there's five different nerves that are involved in the tongue uh, five different cranial nerves and they all have a little bit different responsibilities and it's kind of crazy but you know children are just so uh i hate to use the word plastic but they are i mean uh, i was a fellow um, after my plastic surgery residency at seattle children's um and you know the things that you're able to do um, for children and with children in craniofacial surgery, you just can't do in um, in adults. So it's it's a pretty incredible thing, and um, you know there's just a little extra ability to heal and to recover that um, that fortunately you know children have. So yeah, and as you're talking about the ability of adults to heal and what some of the possibilities are there, I know there are a lot of interesting trends. Um, in the procedures that can be done with adults and what they're looking to have done, uh, particularly with uh, breast implants. There's lots of different fill ratios and gummy bears, cohesive gel, all these kinds of new techniques, implants, and innovations. Tell me about the ones you see as most promising and that excite you the most. Yeah, I mean, I guess if we were to to segue in into the healing concept, probably the most exciting thing is actually... Uh, with fat grafting and and harvesting fat from different parts of the body and then using those cells ability to heal uh, in a different location um, so that that I think is probably one of the most exciting advances now in plastic surgery and we are using it uh, somewhat for breast surgery I've used that more in breast reconstruction uh, than in than in breast augmentation because it's not quite as effective uh, at at refilling or at filling the breast envelope as a breast implant and so still for you know the vast majority of of all the breast augmentations that I do they're still with implants and and right now there's it's kind of interesting because there's a dizzying number of new breast implants that are just coming through and I think what happens is and and we were we exchanged a, a couple. Uh, emails about disruption, and I think what happens is there. What happened is there was a new implant company that came to the market, which is Cientra, and and they basically started to disrupt the industry that I think had been stagnant for a long time, and started offering new warranties to patients and offering um, different uh, breast implant options. And and recently they've just uh, launched the the newest um, round breast implant on the market, which is a cohesive silicone breast implant. Um, basically, silicone comes in different types, and there's a more liquid type and a more firm type or a more uh, cross-linked or cohesive type. And the shaped implants, if you've heard of those, or the gummy bear implants, those have a breast shape to them or a teardrop shape Kinda to like them. Kind like the teardrop, and, and they, okay. Yeah, and they retain that shape because the, the silicone is a little bit more cross-linked, a little bit more connected to itself. Um, and what they've just recently released is a round implant with that same gel in it. Um, 
the idea is not just that it holds the shape of a round, uh, you know, round shape of the implant, but also, and I think more importantly, the idea is that perhaps the silicone is unique in the way that it prevents leaking out from the shell and uh, is less likely perhaps to um, cause a capsule to form because silicone gel bleed or leaking of silicone is one of the um, reasons that we think uh, capsular contracture develops. And so I think it's, it's an interesting concept and is uh, disruptive in its own right to, um, to have this uh, implant entering into the market. Okay, so yeah, it, uh, it can solve some of those problems. Do you see a lot of demand for the the round versus the teardrop? Is that something that they were um, adding to the market to solve that, that demand? Well, well, there's a lot of round implants on the market, and there's a lot of um, uh, silicone implants on the market. The, the idea that the implant is more cohesive and the gel is more cohesive um, is something that's newer, and the... Um, you know, the hope is that it, it decreases the risk of uh, encapsulation of the, of the implant and decreases the amount of gel bleed, but we don't really have a whole lot of data on it. Um, you know, I was listening to your podcast last, uh, the last one with Dr. Hamori about how some of the marketing has perhaps outpaced medicine to some degree, and I think that's happening a little bit with breast implants. Um, even though these are exciting things that make sense with the science that we know, we don't really have the data first. I mean, the FDA has data, of course, for, for their approval process, but we don't um, have all of the information that we may need. And so I think it's incumbent on us as plastic surgeons to continue to, you know, to study the processes. But I think the, the idea of a round, highly cohesive um, or gummy bear uh, implant in a round uh, shape is interesting. And then the fill ratios, which is the other thing that you talked about, um, which is basically just the idea that the um, the implants have uh, a little more silicone within the shell, and so there's less rippling uh, um, involved potentially with with those implants. I gotcha, and that's what I was going to move into next when we were talking about the demand and and the benefit. Obviously, this company's done some research, and they have their data. FDA has the data. Um, what do you suggest or what do you think is a way? I know marketing, you get really excited about something and the marketing department wants to, to pump it out there, but how do you suggest to, to get more of that data? Isn't really the only way to let patients know about this and, hey, there's not a whole lot of data, but it's FDA approved and then start doing the procedures to grow more data? Or how do you, so it seems like kind of a chicken and an egg action there. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think uh, as private practice plastic surgeons, I think we need to collaborate a little bit more. And one of the, you know, one of the things that you and I had uh, discussed a little bit earlier, too, was um, what are some of the threats to plastic surgeons and their practices and some of the challenges. And I think yes. um, really what we need to do is collaborate a little bit more, I think, to um, work together a little bit more as a specialty. And I think that that's probably one of the main things that we could uh, work toward um, with this kind of uh, new technology in any new technology. Uh, you know, there's a database um, that is uh, called TOPS, T-O-P-S. It's tracking outcomes in plastic surgery. And so every time I do a surgery, I log the, log the case. Um, I, you know, if I'm doing a breast implant case, I'll, I'll write in the type of uh, implants that I've used and the technique that I've used. And then if there's any problems that arise, any complications, um, you know, that can be recorded too. And that, that I think is that, um, 
you know, collaborative tool that really can generate data for the specialty. In the absence of, of a, a national implant registry, and a lot of uh, countries have a registry, um, in the absence of that, I think that, that you know, that's our next best option. But really, it'd be great if there was an implant registry where, where plastic surgeons were, you know, were required to, um, to track their uh, surgeries and to track how their patients do. I mean, that, that I think would be, you know, the, really the next level. <laughs> that just sounds a little funny because I think about a handgun registry and some of those things. So women would actually have have their breasts uh, tracked in a registered database, huh? Hey, safety first, man. <laughs> there you go. Um, you know, it obviously would be de-identified and, and HIPAA, um, you know, would be enforced. Uh, and, and it is. I mean, the, the database that I, you know, that we use with TOPS is, is a largely de-identified database. But, um, yeah, and I mean, it poses a lot of problems, you know. It's a very... Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of discretion around plastic surgery. Obviously, we want to uh, respect uh, privacy as an utmost concern, um, but we also want to, you know, help our current and future patients. So it's, yeah, uh, and we're gonna an problem. We've mentioned disruption a couple of times, and it's that's what we'll move into next. But on this topic, I could see um, an innovative company or somebody that could come out there and disrupt. That there could be an opt-in for women that uh, are very safety minded and want to be able to track this thing it could probably plug into the smartphone or some other kind of wireless um, technology be, be some kind of monitoring device and it, if it does start to leak or show um, like a fissure or some kind of weak area yeah, capsule, develops cap, in the exterior is usually what's found is, is encapsulation so you'd see some kind of firmness in the breast but Sorry, go go ahead. But yeah, I mean, because yeah, if something comes up, they can monitor and it it sends a signal to the doctor, and you can say, hey, why don't we schedule a a checkup to see what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, it's not. I'm sure it's not very far out. And I think if uh, you know if any company's going to do it, I would put my I would put my money on Sientra to do something like that to have their own implant related registry. You heard um, it here first, executives at Sientra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get on it. <laughs> but yeah, we've been talking about disruptions and. With the, the internet and technology, it's, it's made collaboration of, on ideas and bringing things to market and, and bringing them in, ideas into reality much easier and much less costly than ever before. And so disruptions are happening in almost every industry, like with Uber and uh, yeah. the taxi guys trying to hold on to the high prices and uh, captive market there happened in a number of other markets. What do you see, you kind of breezed over it a little bit, but maybe we go back into that or go a little deeper or another area that you see as a big threat or disruption to plastic surgeons and their practices? Yeah. So I think the stock answer would probably be encroachment into the specialty by non-board-certified plastic surgeons. That would be kind of what the, the answer that, that people would think that I would give. But mm. I actually don't really feel that way. I guess I would reframe that, that statement as... The, the bigger threat is not necessarily to plastic surgeons, but the bigger threat is to patients in that situation. Gotcha. Where you, yeah. have, you, know, you have weekend courses for liposuction, you have um, new boards popping up uh, you know, seemingly on an annual basis um, that sound really nice, that have a beautiful certificate, but that just don't have the seven years of training that most of my colleagues who are board-certified plastic surgeons have. And you know, it's not that I feel that they're going to take my market share somehow or, 
or um, to take patients uh, away from my practice. It's more that I feel that patients are um, going to go to some of these providers um, less informed, perhaps, and are, are going to be at risk for complications or untoward outcomes. That would be, I think, the threat not to the discipline of plastic surgery by board-certified plastic surgeons, but by the overall field, uh, the, the overall threat to aesthetic surgery, I think, in general. Gotcha. All right, as we move into our final topic, Dr. Oppenheimer, what do you feel has been the main driver for the growth of your practice? Um, that one's pretty easy, uh, and it kind of segues again from the, the last thing we're talking about, which I think that the, the solution to that uh, problem and the, and the solution to the, the patient side uh, risk of more and more providers uh, you know, pursuing plastic surgery and aesthetic surgery, I think education is at the core of that. And the wonderful thing also about the Internet now is that there's more and more transparency of information and transparency of data. And the biggest driver for my practice by far is RealSelf. RealSelf.com is a wow. website with um, physician-generated content, with um, patient-generated content, uh, and really most importantly for my practice is patient reviews. Um, so when, you know, just like when my wife and I go out to dinner, we'll look at TripAdvisor if we're traveling or we'll look at Yelp and we'll try to find what, you know, what the best place is. You can, you can do that now with, with, uh, plastic surgeons and you can, um, look to see what their certifications are and you can see what the patients who have seen them have said. You can look at their photos, see what the results of their breast implants have been or their labiaplasty or their tummy tuck or facelift. And you can see if those results are something that you're you're interested in and and um and that i think is really the the biggest driver for my practice because i'm huge on transparency and um you know it's it's a lot better for it's a lot easier for my patients to say nice things about me than you know for me to sit here and tell you how great i am so um, exactly that, that has been really wonderful and um the uh the developer of it i think actually started with with the travel industry um uh, of course, if he listens to this and I get it wrong now, I'm going to be a little embarrassed. But I, I think it was <laughs> with something like uh, like um, uh, TripAdvisor, actually. As long um, as it wasn't your boyhood friend developed right. it in your garage, then you should know the story. <laughs> Good point. So, so I think that, but I think that the um, the parallel was definitely there, and it's been hugely successful. Um, the the website is great, and that's probably where most patients uh, who um, end up coming to see me in consultation you know, at Fiala Aesthetics, that, that they've come from the, you know, Google search, but I think they end up as a destination um, site on RealSelf because there's just so much information, so many reviews, and so much transparency there. So I think that's really been the best thing that's, that's happened to plastic surgery in a really long time. So do you have an intentional strategy around RealSelf? Like, do you train your staff, you know, your front desk person, everybody that's on the post-op to ask them, hey, would you mind talking about your experience on realself.com with us? Yeah. Um, really, I think it's tough to, as, as I've learned, to outsource a lot, of, uh, a lot of the important things. And so I, you know, I'm the one who, who asks the patients, um, you know, uh, when they're at their one-month or three-month follow-up, um, if they could just give a candid review on their uh, experience with me and with our clinic. And, um, you know, they're just as often saying nice things about all the nurses and the staff in the clinic at, at, at the office as they, as they are about their experience with their doctor. 
And um, But, yeah, I think asking the patients directly as the doctor, I think, is probably the most um, the most valuable thing. But, yeah, we do try to set it up so that it's easier for patients to enter reviews um, and to share photos and share their experience. Yeah, that's the key is you're getting to that overall patient experience or that, that whole patient experience from that first time they start researching you and first find out about you on the Internet or their friend whispers in their ear, hey, Dr. Oppenheimer's awesome. Then they break out their smartphone, type into Google, see your website, see what the reviews are, what's published out there. All through that experience till the, the full post-op, like those one- and three-month checkups you're talking about, that, that whole experience is what other patients are looking at. And if they're talking about that on real self, that is fantastic marketing and advertising for your practice, about the best yeah, you can get. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, you you know, you go to a plastic surgeon's website and it, it reads like a bio, like, you know, Dr. So-and-so went to the best school and the best college and the best residency. You know, they all kind of sound the same and they're written. 18 board certified. And you're like, yeah. wait, what does that mean? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Triple board certified. And they're written as if, you know, a doctor were looking to try to read them and to be the patient. But that's not the reality. You know, the best thing is you know, a patient um, standing in front of the mirror, uh, taking selfies of their post-op experience saying, you know, this hurt a little bit on the first day, but the nurse was really great and, you know, gave me some extra pain medication for, you know, the second week after my visit kind of thing. I mean, those are the, that's the reality of plastic surgery, um, not the, uh, you know, the, the golden websites with, with the certificates and everything. So having, having patients, um, have that uh, voice you know i mean everyone yeah. has a has a very powerful and equal voice uh, in a lot of ways now with the internet and us being of the selfie generation we you know we have this ability to to catalog our experiences um in life and in, in plastic surgery and and um you know the transparency has really been great for for my practice yeah you get into the the substance versus the veneer and yeah. definitely better to focus on that substance that the patients can give you so yeah as we wrap this interview, Dr. Oppenheimer, tell each listener where they can find out about you and what you're currently working on. Well, it's, um, it, it's kind of similar to that social media um, and, and real self uh, concept. I, um, you know, I'm definitely on real self, so just kind of searching me by name is, is probably the easiest uh, way to find me. But what I'm kind of more, more recently interested in is, um, is my Instagram presence, which I hadn't really worked nice. on until about two months ago. But... Again, I think it's kind of that backstage um, pass into the reality of how plastic surgery is practiced and then the reality of, you know, my day-to-day life. I mean, it's not very <laughs> exciting a lot of the time. Uh, you might just see some pictures of me and my cat on there, but um, <laughs> at, at the same time, you know. So you got a baby lion? Yeah, right. <laughs> no. Um, oh, not a house cat. Come on. <laughs> just a Siamese. Nothing. nothing okay, gotcha. But, um, you know, but you can also see uh, some things that you might not see, um, some things where, you know, we're getting together at the office for, for a lunch, we're um, scrubbing in at the sink to the OR. Sometimes we have some intraoperative, uh, intraoperative stuff there, um, some happy patients who bring in treats for us that we, that we enjoy. One of our nurses bringing in her, uh, her newborn baby. She had just been out from maternity leave. And so the personal side of, of medicine is really why I went into this um, this whole deal in in the first place you know the doctor patient relationship is really the the most valuable thing to me and and the relationship that i have with the wonderful nurses and the wonderful staff you know and my and my senior partner in the office are really why you know why i get uh 
excited. And so Instagram has been kind of cool in that way that it's given, you know, a backstage pass to the to the practice of plastic surgery. Um, it's you know not probably as cool as a backstage pass to the Stones or something like that, but <laughs> it's uh, it's still kind of neat to see. And and there's been some nice engagement with uh, you know with some of our patients there. Um, you know, on the, yeah, on they the may not get as excited as, yeah, your VIP to a Justin Bieber concert, but Bieber, hey, that's what I should have said. Cool. Yeah. Or, or Taylor Swift. So Taylor Swift is my there you story. go. So yeah, we'll certainly include links to your Instagram and the real self. Did you have a website where they can find out more about your bio and your 18 board certifications and all the other, uh, Sure. Stuff sure. that they well, have my, for doctors. Well, my Instagram handle is, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but it's um, at Orlando Nip Tuck. So All right. Orlando, Orlando like Nip show. Tuck is my, yeah, is my, is my Instagram handle. And um, the, the main website is plasticsurgeryinflorida.com for, for our practice. Um, okay. So those are, those are kind of the two, um, the two main, uh, uh, main access points into the, into the practice. Yeah, I love how you're you're hitting on that because the two things, plastic surgery, the numbers I've looked at, about 85% of the procedures are purchased and, and gotten by women. And the two things they look for most are before and after photos and then, you know, pricing. What's it going to cost? That's always on people's sure. minds. So sure. you're solving that first big factor with those photos and then talking through the process there. So I love how you're working that. And I want to thank you again, Dr. Oppenheimer, for sharing your insights with me here today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks so much. It's, uh, it is, if it's confusing a little bit, the, the world of implants, it's, it's not because uh, you don't get it. There's a dizzying number of new breast implants that have come out into the market. And I guess the big take home is it's really exciting because their, their goal ultimately is to decrease complications and to increase the longevity of, of breast implants for the patients who have them. But it's, it's incumbent on us as a specialty to, to study them, you know, to do the right thing and, and really to collaborate to try to, to really understand what the factors are that, that improve outcomes for our patients because that's really the goal, you know, at the end of the day is happy patients. That is a great takeaway for patients. But, the, yeah, the, pa- the takeaway I got is, uh, man, I'm just going to have to bite the bullet and do more research on uh, breasts. I think that's it's a tough job, but I think I can uh, set aside some yeah. time to do that. Yeah, or just go to medical school in, in a plastic surgery residency. It'll take you just about 11 years from now. So yeah. Be, that's another approach. Well, I don't know. The weekend course, you know, take that route. <laughs> sounds so much easier, right? Right. so much faster. The quick fix sounds like the way to go, but like you yeah. said, a lot of risk fraught with that. So I want to thank you again, and I want to thank you for sharing this time with me and Dr. Oppenheimer. We know time is your only limited resource and asset that anybody of us has in this abundant world. So thank you again. This is Clint Devins, your host, signing off for this episode of Plastic Surgery Weekly.